Hello and welcome to Stop and Smell the Roses. No child left behind. It's a question that we all heard many, many times in those past years. The question is, why do students underachieve? Our guest today is Dr. Reggie Melrose, and she is a psychologist and also an educator. And she has um, recently published a book called Why Students Underachieve, and also how uh, parents and educators, what they can do to help. And she has very innovative as well as easy way to uh, remedy this problem. Welcome, Dr. Melrose, Reggie Melrose. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And um, Reggie, if I may call you, um, uh, I wanted to find out um, among the uh, students that you've um, uh, you had in your practice or in the schools, um, how many students you think, like in each classroom, underachieve? Uh, in my experience, I've been in schools about 15 years, and uh, mostly at Long Beach Unified School District. And I did notice over the years that there was a growing number of students who were not benefiting from the educational program that they were receiving. I would say anywhere from one to three students in each class in every school was really struggling in a way that baffled most educators. And that adds up very fast. It sure does. So is that what prompted you to uh, decide to write a book? Yes, I, um, you know, as educators, we uh, come to schools with our education and our training, our love of children, our good intentions, and that actually helps us to reach most kids. But because of this number of students that really seem to be growing every year, um, students who were really baffling us, that we were, we were um, pulling out all of our best interventions and tools and strategies to help them, and they weren't getting better, I thought, I've got to figure out why this is. Realized that so many of them, in fact, all of these students I'm talking about, had experienced at least one major traumatic event or several traumas in their lifetime. So when I began to study how trauma affects the brain and, of course, learning and behavior at school, then the answer started to come. I started speaking to other educators and parents about it, and they said, why haven't we heard this before? They wanted this information to be uh, brought to the masses, I guess you can say, and uh, the book started to write itself. So um, you said that trauma, can you uh, give some example of a tra- traumatic experiences? Certainly. Um, well, there's anything from large catastrophic events that we hear of often that really sort of stop the world and make us watch, and those are uh, experiences like 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina, Uh, Columbine and other school shootings. So there are these large events, community violence, but there are also smaller, more domestic events, of course, that we also know about, abuse situations, uh, whether it's physical, uh, emotional, sexual abuse. Also, many of our students witness domestic violence or witness um, substance abuse problems in their parents, and, and this can really set them up to experience terror, sheer fear. Um, So there are also seemingly benign events, uh, accidents 
injuries, hospitalizations, surgeries, even routine medical, sometimes dental procedures. Um, we know that bullying has very serious ramifications. Now we're finally taking that seriously. Some of our students have parents who have a chronic illness and are terrified on a daily basis that they won't see their parent again. Um, the list really, it goes on and on. There are many events, it, and when I say accidents, it can be falls from a bicycle, depending on the circumstances. So trauma really is, for a child, it's any event, whether it's real or perceived on the part of the child, as terrifying. So it doesn't matter what we would objectively judge to be traumatic. We can't let our perceptions interfere with our ability to see how the very real events of our students' lives are impacting them. So what are the, um, I think, the manifestation uh, of, uh, you know, like when someone experiences uh, a trauma or translates a circumstance into a traumatic event? Yes. Either maybe uh, physical and psychological? Yes. Do you have uh, more specific examples? Yes. Let me start with the psychological manifestations because really when once our students before the event may have had wonder and fascination and curiosity and an innocence, after an event their whole mindset shifts. There is a dramatic change and the world becomes dangerous and people are bad and I have shame and guilt and sorry I get goosebumps about it because I see how these children change after these events and um, they they become hopeless and helpless many times and um, so psychologically they're not in a good place they're trying to fool people they want to be okay again they know that they were different before in many cases um, so they try very hard not to ha show these manifestations. Um, physically, physically, um, their whole body and brain has changed. The, uh, many of them live in what I call, what many people call a survival mode. They're now either in a fight or flight mode. Some of them are in freeze. They're still numb and in shock from the event. And so they're moving through their life, some of them in a way where they, they need to be ready for the next dangerous thing that's coming around the corner. So physically, they have a lot of anxiety. They look like they're hyper. A lot of these students are misunderstood as having ADHD. They're put on medications that often make the situation worse because they look, they have so much anxiety and so much hypervigilance um, in their nervous system that they, um, they come off, they come across as hyperactive. Um, but that's really not the case for many of them. So we have to be very careful how we interpret the manifestations of trauma in children. And it can also uh, have, um, I mean, s some situation at school, can that uh, eventually intensify some of these uh, traumatic situations? Yes, unfortunately, because as good as our intentions are, we apply interventions with these kinds of students that work really well with other 
types of students, but actually can exacerbate the situation for the victims of trauma. Um, anger management is one example, right? We, um, this is something we know how to do. So when we see these traumatized students who do have rage, believe me, many of them have a very short fuse and they have tempers and, you know, because they're in this fight or flight mode. So they're, they're, it looks like a paranoia, but really they're just trying to survive their day, get through their day. And so we do see, um, anger problems. But when we put them through anger management, um, it actually doesn't help. It gives them greater insight into the fact that oh, I'm, I'm not getting this right. I'm not, why can't I control my anger? Why can't I use these skills that I'm learning? Um, but the problem is different. Um, you said a little earlier that um, you wanted to start with the psychological manifestation of uh, uh, the, the trauma um, because what I think what guides us is um, also what happens inside, inside our head and there are a lot of medical discoveries uh, in the last decades that help uh, put the finger more like on the on the causes or on the switch and yes. um, you brought something very interesting today <laughs> it's a brain shall we turn it on um, you brought something very interesting today it's a brain shall we turn it on ah yes it turn, turn the brain and see maybe what those people can experience when you say they're hyper yes okay so we have something deep inside the limbic brain or the midbrain called the amygdala it's very, very important to understanding what's going on with these students. So I would say, I'm gonna to try to see here, make sure it's deep inside here. So here we have the brain stem, the oldest part of the brain, and, uh, and we call it our animal brain, and it mediates that fight or flight response. Well, tucked in close to the animal brain, but actually in the midbrain, is the amygdala. This is the, it acts like a smoke screen. And it helps to determine, or very, very quickly determines, what in fact we need to be perceiving as dangerous. So our fear is mediated by this uh, part of our brain. When the amygdala determines that yes, in fact, we are in danger, it sends a very quick message to the rest of the brain. It sends a message to the animal brain to get ready to enter into a fight-or-flight response that will enable our survival. And it's very powerful, the energies that are triggered and, uh, and mediated by this animal brain. The amygdala also sends a message at the same time to the rest of the brain, our neocortex, or the newest part of our brain. And the message that it sends to this part of the brain is to shut down. And the reason for that is because what is mediated, all of the activities and, um, uh, what's the word I really want for that? Everything that's mediated by the neocortex is, uh, it can interfere with our survival. It's not needed at that moment. It is not needed for the moment of survival. It's needed for all kinds of things related to school. And that's the problem. The neocortex mediates our, you know, our ability to 
be here and now listening to what you're saying right to register words to have impulse control to be rational and reasonable to you know to really be able to behave and learn as expected in the classroom that is what we need the neocortex for but these little guys are precious students that have been traumatized who have this amygdala sending the message for them to be in a survival mode and to shut down the part of the brain that mediates what we need for school really makes uh, makes life difficult for our students and this um, amygdala can be uh, is, is constantly on like uh, maybe the alarm system on the car when it's like set up and it goes on and and how do you turn it off yes that's right it, it normally would turn itself off you know we all have this experience of the amygdala but once we know we're safe again the amygdala does shut off and we have access again to this newer uh, part of our brain with repeated or prolonged trauma this is the problem for our students when trauma is repeated or prolonged in their lives the amygdala fails to stop sending that message of fear it actually stays on and so this is how they are left in a constant state of fear or in this survival mode and unable to focus and pay attention and dedicate their mind to anything else but survive that's exactly right their brain is solely focused on survival and they cannot focus on anything else especially reading writing or arithmetic you have uh, quite a few cases of course in your book and um, maybe you want to share with the viewing audience uh, an example that will explain how that um, that student got traumatized and will show actually how you help resolve the situation yes I, I, I have so many and I remember them so well one student uh, who I'll name Jesus he was transferred from one school to another he was 10 years old And the transfer happened because he had been uh, molested at his previous school by peers on the playground. They found some secret little place on the playground where they could take him, and they molested him there. And so uh, we transferred him to another school, obviously, to remove him from those peers and to hope that he would have a, what we call in education many times a fresh start. So at the school, he was terrified to go on to the playground, as you can imagine. So whether it was before school started, at lunchtime, during recess periods, he would completely break down with just the thought of having to go out to the playground. So he was in the counselor's office every day. So the counselor called me, and I began to work with Jesus. And so uh, I was brought in on a day when he was crying in the counselor's office, and I sat with him and really grounded him, just grounded him in his body where he could experience his body again, but in a safe way, because there I was being kind and calm and directive and not using a lot of words because he was in his animal brain. And so to use words would have been talking at a brain that really wasn't available to him. So it was a lot of sensory experiences and just grounding him in his own body. And so we did exercises, for instance, breathing exercises, deep breathing. And I taught him that when you breathe in through your nose and you fill up your belly like a big balloon, you're actually triggering a part of your nervous system that calms and relaxes you. So he started like this at the thought of going out to the playground, but with the grounding that we did and the breathing 
and the, and the sensory um, experiences that we had, he was able to ignite this uh, more relaxed part of his nervous system and was brought into greater balance. And we did this through resources. We found a safe place for him that he could imagine, that he drew, that he saw himself in, that, you know, we talked about his, the, um, the possibility of him thinking about that safe place when he started to get anxious or afraid, that he could use the breathing, that he could play the little game that we played together where we tightened different muscle groups and held them tight and then and then let them go and relaxed them and felt the difference between that tight, sympathetic place where they live when they're in fight or flight but the opposite of that, the parasympathetic place of the nervous system, which really calms and relaxes and brings us back into balance. I think not just students, I think everybody needs to apply this, um, you know, this basic um, method, you know, in our life, but it's, it's yes. certainly even more important for children uh, at that early age that they already, uh, uh, that impairs their ability to, um, to study and, and, yes. and focus. How many sessions do you think it, will, it, it took that particular uh, student uh, before he felt more, you know, more, um, felt calmer and uh, more able to face um, his problem? It sounds miraculous. <laughs> it really does. It was, I saw Jesus twice and I saw his parents once and that was all it took and I checked in with him in the long term and he was out on the playground every day running around with all of his friends so and it was because we focused on sensation I spoke to the part of his brain the part of his brain that was activated and on right so I wasn't trying to do talk therapy or counseling at the part of the brain that he didn't have access to. When I just resonated with him where he was at, then the soothing happened, you know, so we worked at this very internal level. And when we did that, the, it, the progress was very quick and certainly educating his parents to let them know that what they were doing at home, keeping, keeping a, a calm home, turning the television off with violent images and, you know, um, really trying to keep themselves well resourced in their own lives so that they could be of benefit to him because of course our children they suck up our energy like a sponge so we also have to be balanced in our lives if we expect our children to have that same balance and you did mention how you know that um, uh, it, it became very uh, the recovery became very fast thanks to the parent and you have a companion book that's uh, called Hope and Healing. And the book is designed for educators and parents to accompany the, the child and the student uh, through the, the program. Uh, why did you decide to do the, the program? Uh, why did you decide to add this companion book? Did it come soon after that or was it much later? 
It's the book I'm most proud of, I must say, because I, you know, as an educator, I was frustrated that there weren't resources readily available for me to just pull off my shelf and start using with these kids who were suffering. I created the resources that I felt were lacking um, for for educators. So this book is, uh, it brings my textbook alive, right? So it's important to read the textbook to really understand the premise for the activities. But I wanted people not to just read a book and then say, well, okay, all of this, there's great ideas in here, but how do I get started? The activities book is really to get adults, any adult working with a child experiencing these kinds of things, to get them started right away. So is there an age range? Or? You know, I put on the title that it's for school-aged children, but I have to tell you, I've used it with preschool children, and I've used it with the adults in my private practice, and it's been very beneficial. So uh, I don't really limit the activities to any age group. They can be modified, certainly. What, what are the main components of, of this book? Well, this, this book. book is all about building resources in our students. And when I say in our students, I mean inside our students. We need internal resources of strength and competence and pride and identity and all, you know, all of the things that we can carry with us everywhere we go that help us to tolerate the daily struggles of life. Because what I noticed is you can't really eliminate stress and anxiety and pressure and trauma. You can't, there really is so little we can do to eliminate those conditions in our students' lives. But what we can do to create a balance which helps us to tolerate all of the negative is to build up in them positive experiences that they can take with them. So this book is full of resourcing activities that actually help them to start speaking the language of sensation, which is the language of the animal brain, and it helps the adults working with children to communicate with that part of the brain with their students so that there is a resonance between them and the whole brain is part of the healing process. And um, so you mentioned yeah, the, uh, the need for uh, inner balance and and um, and establishing confidence and peace. Yes, because that's uh, first you have to be on the safe uh, yes. ground to uh, be able to uh, uh, to slow down that um, that part of the brain that is sort of uh, overreacting. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Um, from uh, from the uh, child uh, point of view, this must have been very successful as well, right? From my children's, the, the kids that I yes. worked with? Oh, yes. I mean, first of all, they love participating in it. You know, they get involved. We get up. We're on our feet. We're doing physical activities. We're doing art together. And I'm asking them about them and not requiring them to explain what's going on. You know, so many of them don't have the words. They know their life has changed and they know things are more difficult for them, but they can't articulate it because they don't have great access to this part of the brain. So it's a relief for them to do this kind of work because this work talks to them. It speaks their language. It's, it's, it looks like um, through the book you put a lot of focus on sensation. Yes. Absolutely. It is through sensation that the healing comes, um, not because we are eliminating uh, words completely or eliminating 
feelings, right? Words are mediated by this neocortex. Feelings are mediated by that midbrain. But we need all of it. We can't ignore the animal brain and its language, which is the language of sensations, yes. So by, by having them really becoming... Uh, conscious of their sensation and the, the uh, immediate world around them, yes. that's uh, the, the key to access the, the brain. Yes, yeah. once you soothe this part of the brain by working with sensations, you have access to this again. And this is what educators need. We need a healthy neocortex, but we're not going to have access to it in our students if we don't first soothe what's overactivated right now. So now you, you yourself you are uh, lecturing as well. Um, you're you, you're uh, uh, getting the word through the educator to make sure they are uh, they have the proper tools in their own field, right? Yes. I train school districts all over North America now. I've been very privileged to be invited to train school districts. And they're really welcoming this work because they recognize that what they're doing now isn't working. And so there needs to be this whole paradigm shift where we really start to pay attention to the neuroscience that is telling us that there really is a specific impact of trauma on the brain and nervous system and very specific ways to intervene. Uh, based on that research, so they're open to it now. We're we're really seeing a change, and I'm I'm glad to to know that you know you started this here in Long Beach, and yes. it's spreading throughout the uh, the country, and with uh, you know a lot of very good and positive results, and and probably bringing uh, an answer to uh, you know uh, no uh, child left behind. So we're getting close to the end of this uh, program, and um, you had a lot of very interesting uh, information, very valuable information. Again, um, uh, Dr. Ridge's book is Why Students Underachieve and What Educators and Parents Can Do About It. And um, so we are uh, wishing you a lot of uh, success with uh, your method and something that's, again, applicable for, uh, I think, in the age. Yeah. Yes.